Thank you so much for coming tonight. We want to welcome you and as we begin our second study on the biblical doctrine of hell and we're going to cover I think some real interesting things tonight. Before we begin our journey let's pray. Father we want to thank you for your precious word. It is the authority for what we believe. It's the authority for how we act. It's the authority for our defense. It gives us security. It gives us hope. And we realize, Lord, that every single word that you've put in the scriptures is inspired by you and it's profitable. This is a sober study. There's no question about this, Lord. And I pray that you would use it in the way the Holy Spirit needs to use it and could use it in the lives of not only us, but all those who will listen to the study. And we will thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we were together, we spent the time introducing the fact that our authority for this study in the doctrine of hell is the Bible. It's the Word of God. And we said that it is not human reason, although I think human reason is certainly going to be consistent with believing there is a hell, but we don't base it on human reason. We base it on what the scriptures say. The second rejected authority source that we reject is we do not base our view of hell on human sentiment. We don't base it on human sentiment. I've heard people say concerning people who've died, oh, we know he's looking down on us. Or we know they're looking down on us now. That's the emotions talking. It doesn't line up with biblical doctrine necessarily. I do think there is certainly knowledge that one can gain having been on this earth that mind doesn't stop working we'll certainly see that and they do think in terms when they're in heaven or hell but to actually believe that somebody's looking down on us and just monitoring us at all times just because we feel like that's what we want to have happen is not reality and it certainly isn't consistent with the word of god that's human sentiment and human sentiment and human sympathy does not determine our doctrine of hell. Just because someone doesn't feel as though they don't want to agree with the doctrine or accept the doctrine has nothing to do with whether or not it's true or whether or not it's biblical. In fact, truth initially often goes against feelings and sentiment, which is why there are so many admonitions in the scriptures to develop a sound minds. Now, the thing that we want to always remember about the Word of God is that God never gives His people or any people the right or prerogative to modify truth based on how they feel. And so we don't have that prerogative to be able to go to the Word of God and say, well, I don't like this verse, and I don't like what this passage teaches, so therefore I'll just modify it as to what it means to me. We don't have that right. Our job is not to defend how humans feel. Our job is to determine what the Word of God says, even under doctrine like hell. As Dr. Chaper said, the theologian is appointed to discover and defend that which God has revealed. So God's Word takes a higher precedence over human reason and human sentiment. And when you start talking about a doctrine like hell, human reason and human sentiment comes into play because people don't like the doctrine. So you just have to say, well, you can believe what you want, you can feel what you want, but we'll base what we believe on the scriptures. So we reject human sentiment as an authority base when it comes to the subject of hell. A third rejected authority source is we don't base our view of hell on religious opinions because there are a variety of religions and there are a variety of religious opinions when it comes to this subject of hell. In fact, some religions have invented the notion that when a person dies, 
they go to some probationary place and they may have a chance later to escape or get out of that place. Others have invented their own concepts and opinions of what they think hell is like. I mean, some have come up with the idea that hell's a party place where all friends meet there and they have a good time. I mean, that's what some people think about hell. Jehovah's Witness teaches that the soul ceases to exist when a person dies, therefore hell is a state of non-existence. The Mormons teach that hell is a temporary place where non-repentant people go to suffer for their sins for a while between death and resurrection. Islam believes that hell is the place with seven layers that features fire and boiling water that is blazing, crushing, raging, scorching, furnace, infernal. And then, of course, you go to 1439 at the Council of Florence and 1545 to 63 at the Council of Trent, the erroneous doctrine of purgatory came into existence. We'll get into that later in the study. But they based their belief on the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees 1242, and they concluded that when a person dies, their soul goes to a place of temporary punishment, a limbo type of place. And if you pray for that soul enough, or if you light enough candles, you can help the person get out of that place and go to heaven rather than hell. Once a person or a religion admits the Bible does teach truth about a real hell, then the next thing religion has to do, or they want to do, is try to invent some idea in which they can make it not forever or eternal. So once a religion says, well, you know, the Bible does seem to teach hell, then they want to tamper with the idea and make it fit their religious dogma or doctrine, and that's what a lot of people do. We reject it. We reject the religion that teaches their whatever they're teaching if it's not squaring with the truth of the Word of God. So that's another source that we reject. We reject religious opinions. A fourth rejected source is we do not base our view on hell on sensational experiences. Now, every now and then, someone will claim they saw hell or went to hell and came back. And they usually tell this sensational story of how they happened to be permitted to come back. There was a book that we actually had in our library about a guy who said that he was able to go to hell for a few minutes, and then he came back. He comes from somewhat of an emotional religious background, and he goes all over, and he keeps people mesmerized. I mean, with this story. Of course, if he were to say it to me, I'd say, I don't believe you, because it doesn't square with the Word of God. And the reason it doesn't square with the Word of God is I'd have you go over to Luke chapter 16, if you would, for just a minute. Luke chapter 16. So here you have a guy telling people, going from church to church, writing a book on how he went to hell for a few minutes, and he got into a room, and the room was hot, and he realized it was hot, and off in the distance he could see flames of fire, and it was not a good place to be, and he was locked in there, and that's where he was, and then he had the privilege, as it were, of coming back here, so now he can go on the circuit, he can write a book and go on the circuit and tell people about his experience. Here's my problem with that. When we go to a text that deals with somebody who really is in hell, in Luke 16, and you'll notice when you drop down to verse 27, the rich man says, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the word of God. Let them hear them. 
But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So what we have here is we have a little problem. We have the problem of this guy telling this fantastic story of how he came back from hell. He got to go back. Then you have the word of God. And you go to the word of God and you say, this guy really had a reason he wanted to go back because he had these brothers that were on their way to hell and he didn't want them to end up there. And he says, can I get out of here or send somebody back? He doesn't even ask to go back. He said, send somebody back from the Abraham Bosom side. And the answer is no. Once you get in there, you're there. Now, the fact is, if a person really went to hell, they wouldn't get out. And if a person really went to hell, they wouldn't come back. So what I'm telling you is we don't base our view of hell or heaven, for that matter, on sensational experiences that people share. It may make for a riveting story, but it's not sound doctrine. I think Dr. Chafer really summarized the truth against this religious opinion when he wrote, Uncounted legions of angels have sinned, and for them there's not the slightest intimation to be found in the Bible, which extends to them a ray of hope. By divine degree, these angels are already consigned to the lake of fire, not under a possible provisio, that this doom which he averted, if in the meantime they repent, but they are arbitrarily, unrevocably consigned to retribution and that without remedy. We'll stick with the scriptures. We'll stick with what the Bible says. So the study of the doctrine of hell is based on the word of God. That's the only inspired truth we have on the subject. I've had many people say, well, how do you explain this experience? And they'll share some experience. I go, I don't know. Your experience could come from a whole gamut of places. I mean, it could come from your own emotions. It could come from your own mind, something you ate. It could come from something you were smoking or something that you took, or it could come from just your own delusion. It could come from Satan. I don't know. But what I can tell you is it doesn't square with the word of God, and I don't believe it. So if it doesn't square with the word of God, I'm not going to accept it. You can believe whatever you want. You can go tell people about your experience, but your experience doesn't square with the scriptures. And we don't base what we believe on somebody's sensational experience. We base it on the scriptures. So that becomes the authority for the study. The backdrop of what we're going to use is going to be the word of God. We're going to carefully crawl through it in this subject of hell. Now, the fourth question is, what is the root cause of all false information and thinking about hell? From the scriptural standpoint, we may conclude that Satan is behind any distortion when it comes to hell. Satan is behind any untruth and twisting of truth. He's behind all false views when it comes to real truth about hell. He's behind all false views when it comes to truth about any doctrine. Now understand this, Satan does not want people knowing the truth about hell because when we go through this truth about hell, you come face to face with stuff that quite frankly is eternally intimidating. And what we need to understand also about Satan, he's a liar. He is a liar. He has his arsenal of false ministers, false religions, false theological concepts, false writers of books that also are deceptive liars. And these people appear as ministers of light, but they proclaim theological distortions and lies. He's out to twist people's mind, and he's out to twist truth. Satan does not want people knowing the truth on any subject. He certainly does not want people knowing the truth about a subject like 
hell. He would just as soon keep that far from their minds if he possibly could. Jesus himself said, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what Jesus taught about Satan. We read in John 8, in that very context, two times Jesus said, If anyone keeps my word, he will not taste death, speaking of eternal life. And Paul said, of course, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that Satan has a bunch of false ministers out there that are proclaiming false messages. They appear to be so religious and so kind, so charismatic as it were, but they're not telling the truth. Now naturally, when you've got false ministers and false religions and devilish people that are out there talking about religious themes, they're not about to proclaim the truth about hell. That's why we stick to the word of God. Stick to the word of God. That's our authority. Now, the fifth question is, what are two main theological reasons why humans question the existence of hell? Undoubtedly, there is a pride within humans that does not want to concede the truth or submit to the truth about any doctrine, and especially one like hell. But when it comes to this doctrine, the real issue is people don't know the truth about God. That's at the bottom line of this. When it comes to admitting the existence of hell, there are two theological root causes of human speculation that humans, quite frankly, do not know. Root cause number one, most people do not know about the magnitude of sin and guilt as it relates to God. They don't understand the magnitude of sin and guilt as it relates to God. And that's why they can downplay hell, because they just don't get this point. But I want to take us through just a few passages tonight. I want to start in the book of Exodus. We're going to go four passages of scripture. I want you to go to Exodus 23, if you would, please. Exodus 23. I just want to show some things here about God's perspective of things. And we'll start in Exodus 23. Exodus 23, and I want you to notice verse 7. Here's what God says. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. Understand this. God will not acquit guilty people. See, people don't understand what sin and guilt is as it relates to God. God is not going to acquit guilty people. Now, I want you to go over to Exodus 34. And notice verse 7. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren, third and fourth generation. God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. See, people don't recognize the magnitude of sin and guilt when it comes to God. They just don't get it. They don't grasp this. Because if they grasp that, hell is not an issue that you would even begin to question. But they don't understand this. Then I'd like you to go to Deuteronomy 24. And verse 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. So people have a sin issue and a guilt issue, and God isn't just going to overlook this. And then one more, I'd go to Proverbs chapter 17, if you would. Proverbs 17. And I want you to notice verse 
15, Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. So if you justify a wicked person or condemn a righteous person, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. God cannot overlook sin. God cannot overlook guilt. And sin makes one guilty before the Lord. Now, people don't realize the magnitude of the guilt that this makes. And as we brought out on Sunday, time does not eliminate guilt. This is where people get into a fog in their thinking. See, they may think, well, since I did that so long ago, it's probably gone away. When it comes to God, he can't just eliminate guilt. He can't just out of kindness overlook guilt. Guilt is there. It's something that's eternal. It's something that's forever. You cannot just have God overlook sin and sin's what makes one guilty before the Lord and God is not about to overlook it. And God cannot and will not have a relationship with guilty sinners. Now it's one thing for someone to admit I'm a sinner, that's one thing, and it's a right thing, it's a true thing, but you probably will hear this with people, I'm a sinner, well, we all make mistakes. I mean, let's face it, we all make mistakes, so we're all sinners, and so I'm a sinner. Okay, that's one thing to admit that, that's one thing to admit. It's another thing to say, you know, I have guilt before the living God that I can't possibly remove. How am I going to get that removed? Now, that's a whole different issue. It's one thing to say, yeah, we're all sinners, but it's another thing to say, I have a guilt, and God's not just going to overlook the guilt. If something doesn't happen to take care of that guilt, God cannot justify an unrighteous person who's guilty in his sight. Where's that person going to go when he or she dies? They're going to go to hell. And there's only one person, of course, we know in the scriptures that can take care of our guilt case, that can take care and wash it away and give us a righteous standing in the sight of the Lord. This is where this legal matter with God becomes so critical in a book like Romans, and we see the judicial nature of God. Most people have no clue about this, and that's why hell is so foreign to them, or a real place of hell is something that they don't even think about because they don't understand what the magnitude of sin and guilt is as it relates to God. So there's your first root cause of why people, uh, frankly, have these fuzzy ideas about hell. A second root cause is most people do not know about the majestic holiness and righteousness of God. Most people have no clue of this. They have no concept of how holy and majestic God is. But we certainly got a glimpse of that when we went through the book of Revelation. In fact, Let's just flip over to Revelation chapter 4 for a minute. This might be worth our time just to look at that episode in Revelation chapter 4 because we can point out something from Revelation chapter 4. What we have in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8 is a statement that comes from the most holy created angels that are in existence. We are talking about the four living beings that are in existence, that are at the throne of God. I mean, you cannot get a higher angel than that. You cannot get a holier angel than that. Those four living beings are at the ultimate level of holiness and majesty when it comes to being in heaven. And look what they did. Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now you have the highest ranked heavenly angels of all, and they're testifying as to the majesty of the holiness of God. Now most people on this earth don't think about that. 
Because if they did think about that, then they'd have no problem thinking about, you know, how am I going to not end up in hell when there's this holy, majestic God and my guilt just doesn't disappear? I mean, I've done things against the Lord. It just doesn't go away. He's not going to just overlook it. So how is that going to be resolved? In Proverbs 9.10, we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So clearly, one of the basic things to grasp, if you're going to fear the Lord right, is the truth about the fact that God is holy. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So knowledge of the holiness of God becomes essential to understanding this doctrine of hell and seeing the necessity of it. Now these two critical issues, most humans, quite honestly, know very little about. But the holiness of God demands hell because sin is so egregious and offensive to the Lord. Man has very little sense of how sin relates to God. They have very little sense of how sin and how guilt relates to God. Now, for those of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can testify at the moment where we just became, at least in my own personal case, and I know some of you can do that too, became overwhelmed with our guilt. That was the Spirit of God. That was the Spirit of God realizing the condition that we were in was a sinful, vile condition before the Lord. We didn't come up with that. The Spirit of God did that convicting work. And that's why we saw the necessity of inviting the Lord Jesus Christ to come into our life because we realized we have no clue in this, no chance of resolving this relationship. And the problem is most people have very little sense of sin. Most people have very little sense of the holiness of God or guilt. And as a result of that, hell just doesn't even come into their minds. I think it's more than just a coincidence to see that when David says and predicts in Psalm 22, 1 to 3, He sets forth what Jesus would cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Right after he cries that out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He goes, Yet you are holy. You are holy. So you look at that and you say, Wow, what we can conclude from this is that the extreme punishment of sin, which was upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, that's the extreme punishment that he's taking the wrath of God, the extreme punishment of sin in which one is abandoned by God is closely connected to the holiness of God. Now that's the reason why a lot of humans fail to understand the reality and the necessity of hell. They don't comprehend this. They don't even begin to think in these terms of the holiness of God, the guilt of the sinner, the weight of sin before the holy God. They don't think of those terms because if you come to terms with that, you pretty much can say, well, I can see why there would have to be a hell. Which brings us to the sixth question. Does the Bible teach that hell is a real place? Now, every now and then, you'll run across someone that will say something like this. My life is really hell on earth. Oh, no. It's not even close. When you go through the Bible and study the things we're about to go through, it's not even close. But that's the concept that people have. So their concept of hell is just some negative things hit. That's not hell at all. But this is an important question to answer because many people make hell out to be a thought or state of mind or a present condition of life. Certainly one place to begin is to ask, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible present hell as being a real place? What does the Bible say? Now, I'm going to do a little something different here. You'll notice I've got several listings of references there. 
We're going to jump down now to the specific references and inferences to hell by Jesus Christ, because I want to start with that tonight. We're not going to get through all of this, but we're going to start with that tonight. And I also would like you to add, now there's a couple of them that I left up there in the top that I didn't put in this listing, so I would like you to put it in the listing. So in your listing where we have references and inferences to hell by Jesus Christ, when you go down to number 9 on the list, which would be Matthew 13, 15, right under that, Matthew 16, 18, Matthew 16, 18, right under number 9, which is Matthew 13, 50, I have that in these other notes, but I want to put that in there. When you go down to number 16, Mark 9, 42 to 49, right under that, two references that I have up here in Luke, but I want to just put them there so you have them all. Luke 3, 17 and Luke 10, 17. Luke 3, 17 and Luke 10, 17. So what I want to do is I want to start and take you through statements made by Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do. And what I want to do when we go through these statements is I want to assess them and say, does he seem to suggest to us it's a real place? When we go through these statements, is he presenting the idea to us that this is a real place? Or is this just some, you know, never, never land that he's just referring to? So we've actually taken the 22 references, and by adding the three, now you have 25 references, which I had those references up above, but we're going to go through them down there. I want to take you back to our How to Study the Bible before we begin this, because I want to preface this with something you learned when you went through that class, and I'll remind you on page 67, you had that preposition chart with that circle, and in that preposition chart with a circle, we had the prepositions and the direction of movement that were in that circle. And we said that in the New Testament, there were a total of 1,767 ice into. So you're outside of something and you're going into something. The reason I'm laying the foundation for that is because when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to present what he's going to present concerning hell, you will discover that he's going to use that preposition. So you may want to go back and look at your chart again. He's going to use that preposition. Is you're not inside there, but when I say you're going into this place, you're going in there. I think that's a critical preposition to establishing the fact that this is a real place. Well, our time is gone. So we'll just do that, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. We'll start and we'll go through every one of those passages and... We'll have an interesting journey together. I want to thank you for coming. We've got a great day planned for you on Sunday. It's a powerful text. Romans 13 is a powerful text. We're going to finish up the book of Micah Sunday night. That's a powerful text. So we'll look forward to seeing you. Thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.